Well, good morning, and again, we want to welcome you to our time of worship this morning as we gather around the Word of God and we submit ourselves as believers to His voice in our lives. Before I begin, I just want to thank those that are helping to put this service together. I know many of you at home appreciate the ability or the opportunity that you have to join kind of together in worship, though we're physically separated, and I couldn't possibly do this kind of thing if not for the elders coming and reading and praying, the music team providing the worship music. We have Don Cathcart that's putting together the sound and video, and he brings that home to Aaron Parrish, who assembles it into a worship service that you can watch. So I'm very grateful for the many hands that are putting this together, and if you have opportunity, it doesn't hurt to send a little note expressing your thanksgiving to them for that as well. I would like to begin by reading from Isaiah 45. So there in your homes, if you can get your Bibles and join me there, we're going to be doing a second part to our study of this chapter that we began last week and just highlighting again that you will find the note sheet for this particular message online and you're welcome to download that if you haven't already. But join me in Isaiah 45 as I begin reading verse 14 to the end of the chapter. Isaiah 45 and verse 14. Thus says the Lord, the products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabaeans, men of stature, will come over to you and will be yours. They will walk behind you and they will come over in chains and will bow down to you. They will make supplication to you. Surely God is with you and there is no one else, no other God. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. They will be put to shame and even humiliated, all of them, the manufacturers of idols who go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. And did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idol and pray to a god who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together who has announced this from of old, who has long since declared it. Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back. That to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. Let's begin with prayer before we turn to our study of God's word. Our Father in heaven, we do join our hearts together now 
in these unique circumstances that we find ourselves in, and we're trusting, relying on you to draw our hearts together and unify us, though we are physically separated. Bring us together under the authority and the ministry of your word. Though we cannot gather, it is our appeal to you that you will nonetheless, by your strength and by your sovereign ability, grow us into the image of Christ. We pray that you administer to those that are physically hurting right now in our congregation and some of whom we cannot physically connect with at this time. But we ask that your hand would touch lives. Those that are struggling with health issues, we commit them to you. Those that are facing surgeries and procedures, we give them into your hand knowing you are a good God doing good things and you will accomplish a good and glorious end. And we humbly submit ourselves to that righteousness, that goodness in our God. Father, I pray as well for the spirit of the believer here this morning, that you will grow us in the likeness of Christ. Give us that inner conduct, that inner love, that inner disposition and humility that belongs to the person of Christ. Grow us in our love for one another. We pray that you will establish us even further in the ministry of serving your kingdom and proclaiming your gospel in spite of the circumstances that we find ourselves in today. We do pray, Father, for our time in the word now. Give me the ability to speak clearly, to represent the truth of your word well, and I ask, Father, that our hearts will be open to receive what your spirit would be willing to do in our lives as believers. I pray also for those that are listening to my voice who may not yet be one of yours but who you might be willing to call to yourself. You are the God that opens hearts. You're the God that gives faith, that draws men in repentance to yourself. And so, Father, we ask that you would accomplish your purposes not only in your church, but for those that you would call into your church by your good grace and your mercy. Bless us now as we enter into this time of worship around the authority and the beauty of your word. And we pray this together in Christ's name. Amen. Well, again, last week we started a two-part study of Isaiah 45 that I believe addresses some of the concerns and the questions that believers and unbelievers alike may have during a time when there is a global pandemic or a global crisis upon us. And I know that many of you older folks have gone through a world war and you've seen that kind of global effect the turmoil can have on our individual lives. And while this pandemic, this viral pandemic, is not nearly to the scale of a world war, nonetheless, we are recognizing that what is taking place today has a worldwide effect on all of our lives, whether it's of health or a threatening life itself, or it's financial, or it's the social gathering, or even our church fellowship being disrupted as it has, this pandemic has, has affected all of our lives. And it is my view that when we come to these kinds of crises, these kind of times of turmoil, it's the word of God that we can turn to that gives us surety, and it gives us comfort, it gives us hope. And it's my belief that Isaiah 45 is a beautiful text to come to because when we see what's going on around us, one of the first remembrances we should have is our God is still seated on the throne. And that's what we saw from Isaiah 45 last week in the first half of that chapter. We considered the sovereignty of God's throne that 
our God is still seated. He is still in control. He is still by his providence ruling. And we saw five characteristics of that sovereign rule of God's throne in our study last week. And if you were not able to take that study in, I believe it should still be on our church website if you want to follow along. This morning, we're going to pick up with a second remembrance that we should have when we are in a time of turmoil and crisis, and that is to remember God's saving power. It is the second half of Isaiah 45 that dominates this passage with a presentation of the power of God's salvation. God promises to be Israel's savior. And in a sense, Cyrus was that person that was brought in by the Lord to shepherd Israel out of Babylonian bondage and the oppression of that slavery that Israel found itself in. So in a smaller, a temporal sense, God is showing himself to be Israel's savior. But this text before us, is in a much larger, broader sense about God's eternal salvation, God's spiritual salvation. And he's calling Israel to see God as their Savior. He's calling Israel to see God as the only Savior of mankind. And then in verse 22, the world is invited into this gospel message. One of the characteristics of our present pandemic And what is really driving, I believe, a lot of the fears, anxieties, and the activities of governments and medical personnel is that, like a world war, this pandemic is threatening life itself, and people are dying. And what has frightened our world is that we've come to a virus that we can't seem to be able to control. There's no pill, there's no shot to prevent it or to get us out of that virus, and the best that we can come up with is to separate, stay away from each other. And what we are all watching on the daily news is the death toll continuing to rise. This virus then can be deadly. And for the Christian, such a pandemic, such a threat to life itself should remind us that God has provided such a powerful salvation that death is no longer a concern for those who belong to him. In fact, it's the Apostle Paul that was so confident of this truth that he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. As Tim just read this morning to the church in Corinth, Paul wrote, for the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And when a death sentence was pronounced against the Apostle Paul, as he sat in the city of Rome in chains, awaiting the decision of government as to whether he should live or die, Paul gave these famous words that we live by or desire to live by, where Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. The fear of our present pandemic is largely that death can result. And as Christians, we should be reminded that the fear of death has been removed for those who believe in the power of God's salvation. And this is what Isaiah 45 communicated to Israel. The second half of Isaiah 45 tells Israel that God has a much bigger plan of salvation than merely to deliver them from the bondage of Babylon. And the overtones of this part of the prophecy, I'm going to say here at the beginning, has Messiah in view. God, the only creator, We turn to Colossians 1. That's Jesus. To God, the only Savior. This is Jesus, Messiah. 
So we're going to examine first God's power to save, and we're going to consider the characteristics of that power of God in his salvation, beginning with verses 14 down through verse 17. God saves eternally. And again, this is compared with the temporal salvation of of God delivering Israel out of bondage from Babylon. But God presents a much fuller, a much more powerful salvation in this text. God's salvation, he says, lasts forever. And it's in this part of Isaiah's prophecy, it can be difficult to know who is speaking at one particular time. And even scholars don't agree on this. So I don't intend to put a strong conviction to my suggestions as to who happens to be speaking at any given moment in verse 14 down through verse 17. But to be sure, the message of God's salvation is very clear and it is very certain. The presentation here of God's saving power is that he will do so everlastingly. It will have such long-reign effects that there will be no end to his salvation. Now, without a doubt, that being said, verse 14, clearly it is God that speaks first because our text tells us so. And here God informs Israel that three nations of Africa will come to honor Israel and will praise the God of Israel. There may be some application to the salvation from uh, Babylon that Israel experienced under the hand of God here. But this appears to have an eschatologic or a future picture of the messianic kingdom age when the Gentile nations will come to receive the Jewish Messiah. These Gentile nations come bearing gifts to honor the nation from whom the Savior is known. The chains that are mentioned here in verse 14 are a bit more ambiguous but it could be a reference to what Paul described in this salvation of ours, that in Christ we have been released from the bondage of our sins, and now we've been chained to the righteousness of Christ. And you'll observe that these Gentile nations, there in verse 14, are following behind Israel, coming after them in regard to God's salvation. And I think we're reminded here that the gospel came to the Jew first, beginning in Jerusalem, moving to Judea, Samaria, and then to the remotest parts of the earth. And we see that in the book of Acts. Gentile people from the nations will follow behind, believing Jews. They come to faith in Christ. And in this way, Israel is honored and given a place of significance among the nations because salvation has come from the Jews. It's a Jewish Messiah that has brought this salvation. So these believers from the nations then appear to speak in verse 14 and 15, responding to this gospel, responding to the salvation they've been introduced to through the nation of Israel. And they seem to confess here in the second part of verse 14 exactly what God has been declaring of himself throughout this prophetic chapter. Surely God is with you. They're speaking to Israel. There is none else, no other God. These are the Gentile nations speaking. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, Savior. This gives a representation of the Gentile nations that have come under the salvation of Israel's God. And they're now honoring Israel at the same time that they are praising the God of Israel. Surely God is with you. There is no one else, no other God. Truly, you are a God who hides himself, 
O God of Israel. These believers from the nations then are speaking, praising God, giving honor to Israel. And what the Gentiles then are referring to here in verse 19, um, where it says that God has not spoken in secret, seems to contradict what these people are saying in verse 15, that God is a God that hides himself. That's a little bit of an uncertain passage here. They see God as one who hides himself. And that seems rather inconsistent with what this entire chapter has been doing in proclaiming God. God has not kept secret who he is. He's declaring, I am God. I'm God alone. There is no other. So God is not necessarily hiding himself. So what do these Gentile people mean by this? God is a God that hides himself. What the Gentiles are referring to is that sinful men do not always see God for who he is. And Paul wrote of this in his first letter to Pastor Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6. And you may want to join me there. 1 Timothy chapter 6, if you would look at verse 15 and 16, because the Apostle Paul taught the same thing to Timothy, who is pastoring the church of Ephesus. He writes this of God. Verse 15, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. A way for us to think about God hiding himself is that he exists in a perfect realm of light and righteousness that is not clearly visible for sinful humanity, that they might know God or see God apart from Christ. All men dwell in darkness. And when God acts, he does so often in very unusual ways, unexpected ways, that sometimes is beyond human understanding. And yet these Gentile nations here in Isaiah 45 have come to know the God of Israel as the God who saves. And this describes a people whose spiritual eyes have been opened to know God in a saving way. In Christ, we can now say the same thing about God, knowing that the Spirit of God have taken the scales off our eyes so that we can see God for who He is. We can see Him as a Savior. His ways were once hidden from us until the Spirit of God revealed to us the depths of God. And Paul writes about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 as well. Here in Isaiah 45, three pagan nations who have come to know God, crying out, O God of Israel, Savior. His saving ways were once unseen, hidden, but now they become visible, they become revealed. The description of God's eternal salvation continues in verse 16 and 17. And we could see the voice of this particular speaker being that of the the previous passage, the three Gentile nations. But I think it's better to see Isaiah here that is speaking to Israel. They will be put to shame and even humiliated. Verse 16, all of them, the manufacturers of idols, will go away together in humiliation. Israel has been saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will not be put to shame or humiliated to all eternity. Now, while these two verses continue to speak about God himself, whoever the speaker is, The message of eternal salvation is very strikingly presented in a contrast between shame and not shame. Those who turn to idols will come to shame and humiliation, while those who turn to the Lord God will never 
no shame or humiliation throughout all eternity. And their shame and humiliation speaks about eternal spiritual death. There is an end to men's religion. The manufacturer of idols is a reference that is meant to describe man-made religion. Verse 20 speaks of idols carved from a piece of wood that men will pray to, but it's only a man-made God that cannot save. And again, this is a picture of man's religion, and it's contrasted with the one God who alone is a Savior. Man wants a God made to their own specifications. They want a form of worship that appeals to them. And for a time, this man-made religion will make man feel somewhat spiritual and will give to man a sense of purpose, even giving to man a sense of righteousness. God says to Israel that in the end, those who have turned to their own gods and their own religions will be put to shame. Notice all of them. No religion on the face of the earth or down through history of mankind is going to have a good end, if not that of the God of the Bible, because God alone is Savior. You can see where Isaiah 45 is not going to be an acceptable reading for the religions of our world today, because God is declaring not a one of you is going to have a good end. Every religion, if not the religion of the God of the Bible, Every religion is going to have an end of humiliation and shame. Death will come sooner or later, and when that moment comes, all who have followed after other gods will know this end, but not so with those who have been saved by he who is God alone. The God of the Bible has not been crafted by men or carved from a piece of wood. Those who trust in him will not be put to shame but they will be honored and glorified. Notice to all eternity, our end is eternal. We'll never know shame. We'll never know humiliation. And this will be an eternal salvation. The power of God's salvation is that death cannot rob believers of its glory and its blessing because it's eternal. It has no end. And therefore, when we look at the things of life that may trouble us or even threaten us with death, Like a virus, we are reminded that God's salvation overcomes death. Death is powerless to rob us of the eternal life-giving power of salvation that is found in God alone, in our Savior. So the power of God's salvation is that it's eternal. It's unending. But second, as we pick up this text in verse 18 and follow along, along down through verse 21, we also see that our God's salvation is righteous. God saves righteously. God's salvation is not only eternal, but it's based on his perfect righteousness. And it is God again that speaks here in verse 18, for thus says the Lord who created the heavens. And then you see in parentheses, Isaiah almost pauses here to interject his own view. He, he's speaking now from a different perspective interjecting this into what God has said. And we would say, the Spirit of God is moving Isaiah to write these words. He is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it, did not create it a waste place, but he formed it to be inhabited. How critical it is for us to see that God's righteousness and his salvation are inseparably joined together. God always speaks what is upright. 
And we see it goes on to say, I am the Lord, God again speaking. There is no one else. I've not spoken in secret in some dark land. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in a waste place. I, the Lord, speak righteousness, declaring things that are upright. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and pray to a God who cannot save. It is important for us to see the righteousness of God is the power of our salvation. God always speaks what is upright. He always acts in a way that is righteous. And bringing salvation to his creation, we can say, was the right thing to do. And God would do it in a very righteous way. And then we see the creation is connected with this righteous salvation. So when we think in terms of God's salvation, we see God's righteousness inseparably joined with that salvation. But in this chapter, we've seen time and again that God's creative power is also brought into this discussion. So that what God is doing to save is in some way connected with his power over creation. What God has created, remember, was damaged by sin. And in his righteousness, God comes to recreate in his salvation the work that he had made in the beginning through his power. Our text read, reads as if Isaiah pauses here in verse 18. But then God picks up again to express himself at the end of verse 18 and into verse 19 and into verse 20. And it's highlighted yet again as God speaks of his saving power. He does so as the one who created the heavens and formed the earth. But notice that God did not create the world to be empty or void as Isaiah adds in verse 18. He intended his creation to be inhabited. He created man and animals to populate the world. He ordered man, he ordained for man that he would be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. God made earth to be suitable for life and to support the needs and the pleasures of creation. None of the other planets that God made were made for the same purpose. But earth, by design, was a planet to be filled, to be inhabited. Then man's sin corrupted that picture. But it didn't alter God's eternal plan. Man's sin brought in death, and death threatens to do what to the earth? To uninhabit the earth. But again, it did not alter God's eternal purpose for this world that he made. Now, I want to add something that's a bit of speculation on my part, but going back to what we studied last week from Psalm 103, remember what David said, that God had not rewarded him according to his sin and his transgression. God did not reward him as he deserved, because in truth, all sinful mankind deserves death. And we might ask, why has God allowed any sinner to exist on the planet that he has created if what we deserve is death and sin has entered into the picture. Now what we deserve is death. Why would he allow any sinful person to continue living here on earth? And I think we can answer, at least in part, looking at verse 18, that God's purpose to inhabit his world is greater than our merits or our lack of merits to live on that world that he has made. Yes, we deserve death. But God had a purpose in creation. It was to inhabit the earth. 
And so God overlooks by his grace for a time man and their sins. God created earth to be filled with his creatures. And from those who have inhabited his creation, God has purposed to call some to himself that they might be citizens of the eternal kingdom that he is also forming. So allowing his creation to continue to run his divinely determined course also provided a purpose in bringing salvation to that creation, rescuing us from death. And I don't think I'm stretching the meaning of the text too much to apply God's creative purpose for earth to his creative, creative purpose for heaven. God will inhabit his kingdom from those on earth that he has redeemed by the blood of his son. It is creation that once again is added to this chapter as God now unveils his plan of eternal salvation. Why tolerate man's sinful conduct for even one moment if God does not have some eternal plan behind such a patient endurance of man's sin? God intends to inhabit what he creates. And man has fallen into sin, sin brought in death. So God has brought in his salvation to rescue us from death and give us life once again. I want to draw your attention again, though, to that word righteous, which identify God's ethical character, to be sure. But it also means that what God does, he always does correctly. And what God does is the correct thing to do. God always makes right choices, never makes wrong choices. And when he made the heavens and the earth and all that is in it, remember, after each of those six days, God looked at what he had made and he said, it is good. It was the right thing to do. It was good in quality, but it was also good that he did it. God always does what is right. He always speaks what is right. And because he alone is God, there is no one else that speaks righteousness to us, certainly not wooden idols. Since God declares things that are upright, those who trust in him can be assured that his salvation is both just and it is effectual. It is done correctly and his salvation will work. God's righteousness and his salvation are bound together in this section of Isaiah 45, which stands as a guarantee of God's promise. I can save. I will save. My salvation will accomplish what I intend. He is a righteous God and a Savior, as it says in verse 21. And I believe these are words that point us to the power of the cross of Jesus Christ. Because when he came to this earth and he began his ministry, you recall that he went to John the Baptist that John might baptize him. And John was pulled back at this at first. He's saying, no, you should be baptizing me, not the other way around. And this is how Jesus answered John. He said, permit it at this time, for in this way it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. And that marked the beginning all the way to the end of Christ's ministry. It was marked with a fulfillment of all righteousness. And Jesus demonstrated that as he perfectly fulfilled the law of God's righteousness. And when came time for him to become our Savior, that perfect fulfillment of righteousness was then nailed to a cross. And God accepted that atonement. God accepted that sacrifice. After all, the Son of God was the one that God was pleased in. 
And so as he looked at his own son who was nailed to a cross, he is saying, I accept that one. I accept that sacrifice. And then our sins were laid upon him. And the righteous one became defiled with our sins. And God vented his judgment against his son who made full payment for our sins. And there on the cross, he surrendered his spirit willingly, dying to make that payment for sin. Jesus Christ was the perfect fulfillment of all righteousness such that those who are saved are restored to the righteousness of God. And this is one of the mysteries that I see even in my own life to think of myself as standing before God perfectly righteous because I know my sin. I know my weakness. I know my failings. But the scripture has reminded us that when we come by faith in Christ, My filth, my sin was laid on him and his righteousness is now laid on me so that as I stand before God in Christ, I wear his, Christ's, righteousness. This is the salvation we're talking about. What makes our salvation so powerful is that it is based based entirely on the righteousness of God. God declared his righteousness. Man failed to keep that righteousness. God provided then a righteous Savior, a substitute that would fulfill all of the righteousness of God. And he would carry our sins. And by faith, as we turn to Christ, we then get the righteousness of God's Son applied to us. That's the power of the cross. And it should be no surprise to us as believers that both God's sovereignty and his salvation are then so tightly bound to his creation of the heavens and the earth and all that is in them. What God created, he has full dominion over. And it pleased God by his own righteousness to save that which he has made. A biblical understanding of creation is critical to our understanding of salvation as well. And we can see why Satan has leveled such a formidable attack against the biblical account of creation. Because both creation and the saving of that creation are declared and fulfilled by the power of God's righteousness. And only God is qualified to declare both to us because he declares things that are upright. So we see the power of God's salvation in its eternality. We see it in in God's righteousness. But third, I want us to to draw your attention to verse 20 through verse 22, as we see that God's salvation is inexhaustible. It's inexhaustible. Look at verse 20. Gather yourselves and come. Draw near together, you fugitives of the nation. They have no knowledge. They carry about their wooden idol and pray to a God who cannot save. Declare and set forth your case. Indeed, let them consult together. Who has announced this from of old? Who has long since declared it? Is it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God beside me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none except me. Verse 22, turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Here is one more powerful characteristic to be seen in the salvation of a God from our text. And I draw your attention to these verses because it shows to us that God's power to save is inexhaustible. We could say it's worldwide. It is limitless. 
And in a sense, it is universal. Not that all men will be saved, but God is not limited to save all. This would seem like a foreign idea to the nation of Israel since they considered themselves to be the only chosen people of God. But God clearly communicates his intentions to save well beyond the borders of Israel. And in verse 20, God confronts the godless who have no knowledge of these things and calls them to come near and consider their present religious representations in their man-made idols. And you can almost... Picture what God is doing here as he's calling them, come, take your wooden idol, stick them under your arm, come to me, and let's have a conversation about these idols that you have carved out of wood. You pray to them, but they cannot save. God almost taunts them with the reality that they can pray to their gods, these wooden objects that they have carved. God provokes the nation in verse 21 Defend your silent gods if you could. Put yourselves together. Have a conversation among yourselves and see what you come up with. Give a defense for why your gods cannot do anything. They can't speak. They can't answer your prayers. They haven't spoken from of old. And not only can they not speak, but their predictions won't come true if they could speak. And so God questions them. Which of you gods? have spoken from old? Which of you have fulfilled what you've declared from of old? And he again says, none of you. It is I, the Lord, that have done these things. What religion of man has promised salvation and then has actually saved? In God's challenge to the nations, he declares, it is only I, the Lord God, who is righteous and a savior. He alone declares what is right and what he speaks, he accomplishes. By Jesus Messiah, God's salvation was fully accomplished. God declared that salvation from of old and then he accomplished it in Jesus Messiah. And I think at this point, we think of the words of Jesus from the cross as he bowed his head and he said, it is finished, it is done. And then in verse 22 God presents his gracious offer to the nations. Look well at what God is saying here. Turn to me and be saved. All the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. What a powerful statement that God is not limited in his saving ability. He's not limited, saved to the ends of the earth. But I want you to notice in this invitation, neither is his graciousness limited such that he would call the false religions of the world to turn to him and be saved. Man has shown his ultimate contempt for God by turning away from the one true creator God, and he's turned to carving blocks of wood and worshiping those blocks of wood and calling upon that block of wood to save. And it can never save, God says. Verse 22 is a call to repent and to believe in the only God who can save. And as the early church preached Jesus Christ, that was the repeated call of the gospel. Repent, and by faith receive the salvation of God that is only found in Christ Jesus. As Paul recounted this gospel invitation to the church in Thessalonica, this is what he wrote. He said, how you people turn to God from idols, serving a living and true God. This is what God is calling people to do in Isaiah 45 and verse 22. 
What grace, what power to declare the God who saves. Men have created their own religions. They replace God. They try to find their own spiritual pleasure in something other than God. Man's religious exp- religion expresses dissatisfaction with the perfection of God's righteousness. So they seek to create a righteousness that is more suitable to their own standards. And then man worships that, would he, that which he has created rather than worshiping the creator himself. God would have every reason to despise and destroy the nations for such rejection of him. And yet here he is, verse 22, calling men, come, examine, compare your idols, your gods, your religions to me and my salvation and my righteousness. Draw near, consider, and then God invites him, turn to me and be saved. This is an expression of God's limitless grace and his ability to save all. And by this invitation, I think we have a clear understanding that God is saying there is no other God. There is no other salvation. Salvation is only provided to those who turn to this God. You will find salvation in no other one. Not Muhammad, not Buddha, not Joseph Smith, not the Pope. Men and women must turn away from their own religious inventions and embrace God alone and his salvation alone. And in this invitation, there is more than sufficient power in the cross of Christ that all the ends of the earth would be saved if they would but what, what? turn to him for salvation. In this brief passage on God's salvation, God reveals his power to rescue his creation from their own corruption. And the evidence of God's power is that what he saves He saves forever. In other words, his salvation is not limited in duration. He saves righteously. Everything has been done correctly, assuring sinners that they can be fully restored to righteousness in Christ. And therefore, his salvation is not limited in quality or purity. And third, he saves universally, reaching the salvation, stretching across the ends of the earth, And all that would acknowledge him in repentance and faith, he is willing to save. And that's telling us that God is not limited in his reach. He's not limited in his ability to save abundantly, even to the ends of the earth. So the word of the cross, the gospel of God, is truly the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. So once again, Isaiah gives confidence to the believer that God's throne is sovereign. He is ruler over all. We see the saving power of God. Finally, I want to draw our attention to just one more briefer point, God's secure future. God's secure future in verse 20 down through verse 25. We can think of this as the future that God has made secure. And when we are facing turmoil in our world or even in our individual lives, the Christian is to be reminded the future belongs to the Lord. And in his word, he has declared how we will bring this world to a close and how we will open up eternity before us. Begin with me in verse 23. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. I will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue 
will swear allegiance. They will say of me, only in the Lord are righteousness and strength. Men will come to him, and all who are angry at him will be put to shame. In the Lord, all the offspring of Israel will be justified and will glory. As we have watched this COVID-19 unfold into a worldwide pandemic, the thought I believe that should come to Christians' mind is how quickly our world can enter into a last days kind of event that we read about in God's word. You think about how Jesus described the end times in the Gospels or the book of Revelation describes the outpouring of God's judgment against an unbelieving world where he brings famines and wars and sickness and natural disasters and death across the nations. Today's pandemic should be a reminder to us that all these things will come and may be coming soon. Our world is so tightly knit now. See how quickly a flu bug started in one little community and has now spread across the world, it reminds us that the time will come when God is going to bring this world to an end in a very similar way. Once again, the sovereignty of God brings great comfort to the church in that we know God holds the future securely in his hand. People today are fearful of wars. They're fearful of these kinds of viruses. They're fearful of global warming and a host of other future predictions of men. But the Christian must rest in the knowledge that God will bring this world to close when and how he is determined. Notice the confidence we are to have in the word of God from verse 23. God says, I have sworn by myself. He's made an oath with himself. Because there's no one greater to turn to. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness. And it will not turn back. Do you see the security of that word? Do you see what God is declaring? The Christian is to take great comfort in what God has promised to do. Because he's saying, what I promise to do, I will accomplish. In Matthew chapter 24 and verse 35, Jesus was addressing these end times. And he said, heaven and earth, will it will pass away. But my words, they're not going to pass away. Man is trying to hold on to this earth. Jesus is saying the day will come when heaven and earth, they're going to be gone. But my word will remain. What God purposes to do, he will do. And this security in God's word applies very wonderfully to the promise that he had made in verse 22 to save all that will come to him. And then in verse 23, he makes an oath by his own character of truth and righteousness and justice. The surety of God's word is going to draw a response that I want you to note involves three different parties, beginning with those who are justified by him, those that have come to God for salvation. These are the ones that have turned to the one true God for who he is and for what he has done to bring salvation. These ones are pictured bowing the knee in worship of God, confessing their devotion and allegiance to him. They confess that in God alone is found righteousness and strength. And this describes those who have trusted in God's salvation. They embraced God as God has proclaimed himself to be. Here in Isaiah 45, they confess that he alone is God. There is no other. Salvation and righteousness are found only in him. And then verse 25 describes these ones 
as the offspring of Israel. And again, I think this takes us back to verse 14. The salvation of the nations that are coming in behind Israel. They've recognized the God of Israel, that he is a savior of men. And I believe this also draws our attention to the words of the Apostle Paul who wrote to the church in Rome, chapter 19 of Romans, that not all who are born into the physical family of Israel are truly of Israel. Rather, the true lineage of Israel are all who believe God and who believe in the righteousness of salvation that God has provided. It is by faith in God's Son, Jesus Christ, that we become part of his eternal family by promise. If you look in Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to verse 29, we read these words by the Apostle Paul, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Verse 29, If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. I'm not a Jewish person, but what Paul is saying, it doesn't matter if I was born into the nation of Israel. By faith, I've entered into salvation through the Jewish Messiah, Jesus Christ, and therefore I'm part of the lineage of Abraham, spiritually speaking. I'm part of the family of God. I come under the promise of God, a word that was made absolutely sure because God made an oath based on his own character, and he would not withdraw that word. And therefore, I can confidently say that by faith in Christ, I have been justified in him. I am part of the offspring of Israel. And I will be in that eternal glory. Verse 25. The future glory awaits the believer by God's secure promise. We've been justified by faith in Christ. Second, there are those that respond but are angry. At God. Notice verse 24, the second part. These who have turned away from God in anger towards Him, these ones will be put to shame. Humiliation and shame. We've already covered that in verse 16. These are the ones that have preferred other religions or to reject God, to reject the salvation of God. They've turned to their own gods, their own religions, their own righteousness. They have created their own path of salvation, which cannot save. The one who alone is God will determine the final outcome of these ones. And our text tells us that in the end, God has appointed for them shame and humiliation. God's word teaches that what he has prepared for the end of these ones is marked by his judgment and eternal wrath from which there will be no escape. It is the eternal death as scripture speaks. It is interesting that God notes these ones as angry with him. And I think we have seen something of a turn of events in our own nation, where once we were related or at least connected with the Christian religion. Now very often the Christian is despised. The world is angry at us. More than that, it's angry at the God that we believe. Jesus said in Luke chapter 11, he who is not with me is against me. That person that is not with Christ is contrary to him. And God sees that contrary nature as anger. This is a picture of those that have rejected Christ, rejected God, rejected his salvation. But there is a third participant here 
in the end times that must be recognized. And quite honestly, he is the centerpiece. I've referred to this one as the highly exalted one because as we turn to the New Testament, this is what is declared of God. We give some thought here to the God as this highly exalted one, the one that is being knelt before and professed. Notice the language, I've sworn myself. The word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. Who is this that is speaking these words? Well, we have said from the very beginning, we've understood this to be the only true God and Savior, the Creator God. It is interesting that Paul took this passage in verse 23 and quoted this Old Testament passage on two occasions in his New Testament letters. The first of those is in Romans 14 and verse 11. Paul reminds believers of this Old Testament passage in Romans 14 to show believers they are have concern for fellow believers. He instructs the church, defer to the spiritual preferences of others so you won't cause other Christians to stumble. Show respect for one another. And the reason that he gives for this instruction is that we'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ where all of us as believers will kneel and will bow and will pledge our allegiance. So here, Paul in Romans 14 does not clearly indicate who is kneeling and confessing, but the context focuses on believers who have gathered before the throne of God. But it's in Philippians chapter 2 that we are given a bit more information as to what God meant in Isaiah 45. So if you would look with me at Philippians chapter 2 and follow along in verse 9 down through verse 11, Paul gives a further picture of the audience that gives homage to God. After Paul gave a description of the humiliation of Jesus Christ in taking on humanity and humbling himself to the point of death on a cross, bearing the sins of God's people, He shows to us how God responds to that sacrifice that his son has made in redeeming the people of God. Verse 9, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus is Christ to the glory of God the Father. If we look at that quotation that Paul is using here in Isaiah 45, we're not really clear on those who are kneeling and confessing before God. It appears that believers are, because that's the context of Isaiah 45. If we look at Romans chapter 14, again, the context seems to be that believers are confessing and kneeling before God. But Paul shows us something else here. In Philippians chapter 2, several important truths come from this quotation that Paul uses from Isaiah 45. First, those who bow and confess make up three groups. It makes up three groups. First, there are those in heaven, which must include the angels and the heavenly creatures and the saints that are presently with God, who are bowing the knee who are confessing that God is true. Second, Paul says, those on the earth are those who both will bow and confess. 
And those on the earth speak both of the saved and the unsaved, believer and unbeliever alike. And then there is a third group that bends the knee and confesses. Those who are under the earth speaks to the dead who are unredeemed and who are awaiting judgment along with all the fallen angels. So as we look at Isaiah 45, who is kneeling before God, who is confessing? Every created being, believer, unbeliever, the fallen angels, the angels in heaven, all are submitting to his authority. All the the unbelievers who have rejected God are now kneeling before him in that future secure position that God has established. Those who have turned to him by faith for salvation, they're going to be joyfully proclaiming his name in worship, rejoicing in the eternal glory that they're going to share with God and their Savior. All the unredeemed, the unsaved, the fallen angels will also bow before him and fear and trembling they will do so, knowing that their eternal fate is sealed. And their voices will have no choice but to confess that he alone is the one true God. Their wooden idols, their wooden gods are silent at this point. They aren't there to represent these unbelievers. There is no other throne that they can turn to. They can only kneel before Christ and confess him. That's the first truth. The second truth that we learn from Paul's quotation of Isaiah 45 to the church in Philippi is that the entire prophecy of Isaiah 45 was exalting the one true God alone. And Paul gives that God a name in Philippians 2. His name is Jesus. Jesus Christ the Lord. Isaiah 45 has declared God alone as the sovereign ruler. He's declared God as the creator. He's declared the righteous God, the God of Israel, and the only Savior. And beside him, there is no other. Paul teaches the church that this God that he referred to from Isaiah 45 has a name, and his name is Jesus Christ. And God the Father has highly exalted his Son to this position of worship. All of the redeemed of God already know who he is. They worship him in, in this life. They will worship him in the next life. They will kneel before him. They will confess him as Lord, the righteous one of God. They will love him and serve him. Yet those who have chosen other gods, other religions, those who have rejected Jesus as the creator, the savior, the one true God, those who have thought to worship God the Father apart from God the Son, those who have refused to acknowledge altogether God's existence. All of these will also be kneeling before Jesus Christ. And on that day, they will confess that he truly is God and Savior. And unfortunately, they will be assigned to eternal shame and humiliation. All this to say, Isaiah 45 is a prophetic proclamation of Jesus, the Messiah of God. And for those of us that have turned to him by faith as God and Savior, have no need to dread or fear the circumstances or the turmoil that is all around us. And we can say this because Jesus is not only the sovereign God of the universe controlling all things for his purposes, he is also the God who holds his people safely in his hands for eternity 
because he has rescued them. And he has promised them a secure future. All that he does with us will accomplish his good purpose. He rules in perfect righteousness. And our future with him is safe and secure. And I submit to you then that Isaiah 45 is a beautiful picture of hope and comfort that we can take hold of when the trials and turmoils of life come against us, causing us concern, questions, or perhaps anxiety. In bringing this study to a close this morning, I would like to end again, at least as I did last week, by leaving you with three more questions to meditate on while you shelter in place. Beginning with, do you know God in a saving way? Is that salvation understood in light of the cross of Jesus Christ? He alone is Savior that provides eternal life. Do you understand the power of the cross that is found in Christ's righteousness alone and not in any righteousness of our own, not in any righteous effort we can accomplish? We have to begin here. And I would just encourage those of you that are unsure of your salvation, maybe listening to my voice and you know you have not Christ, this is where you begin. And we just challenge you, look at Christ, call on his name. And according to scripture, all those that call on the name of Jesus Christ to be saved, he will turn none away. So begin here. Second, do you trust God's salvation for life as well as death? Can you say with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain? God's salvation is meant to make us secure in both, both this life and in death, the life to come. God's salvation then, in this sense, is life-altering. It's life-changing. So we can enter into the storms and the trials of life absolutely secure because we have this clear understanding of the power of God's salvation. And third, do you anticipate with joy what is yet to come, knowing the future belongs to Christ and that you are going to share in it with him? Are you confident, even in the midst of today's turmoils, we don't have a lot of confidence in government today or in nations or in rulers. But we can be unmoved, undisturbed by these things because we know the one that is seated on the throne and we know where he's taking us. Our future is secure in Christ and we just commend that security to all true believers here this morning. We go to the word of God and we find that God is faithful, God is powerful. He has a certain and a righteous end all of this and for the believer that end will never end that eternity will be just that eternal and we get to share that in the glory of Christ's presence let's close in prayer father in heaven we do thank you and praise you that you are the God who you are it is our part as believers to worship you and to praise you to give thanks for who you are and for what you've done because we have come to know you and we can know you more fully even as we study your word and learn more of you. Father, I pray that you will use that understanding, use that knowledge to give us a sense of security, to put our hearts at peace and at ease with our circumstances around us. Finding ourselves all that much more devoted to you, trusting in you, confident in you. I pray for those that are listening to this this morning who may yet be without Christ, 
Father, you are the God that opens the heart. You're the God that takes the hidden away and reveals the things of Christ. So we ask and pray together for those that are yet hearing this message and without Christ, that you would draw those ones to yourself. Bring them to you to understand you who for, for who you are, that they might be saved as well. And Father, as we move ahead in these next weeks and days, we pray that you would give us a great satisfaction that you as always are working out your good pleasure for your people. We love you, Lord. We praise you. We worship you. We give thanks to you. And we submit ourselves into your righteous and eternal care. In Christ's name, amen.